Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 1380. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Now, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for joining us again this week. It's so good to have you back. The discussion uh, that we're going to have over the next hour is one I think that uh, will profoundly impact you. I, I've, I've had the opportunity to interview a lot of different Holocaust survivors over the past years. Uh, there's, there's, there's something particularly chilling about seeing a, a, a beautiful old lady roll up her sleeve and seeing a, a, a a tattoo on her forearm numbers uh, the number essentially uh, that when it came it, it was her turn to die I still remember the first time I saw that how it affected me and since since that day I've had the opportunity to interview uh, the stepsister of, of Anne Frank who wrote her famous diary from a, a hiding place in Amsterdam I've had the opportunity to uh, interview the now deceased uh, youngest surviving member of, of Schindler's List, who talked about what it was like to see Oscar Schindler. But with all the stories that I've had the opportunity to hear, there are a few stories I think that are as, uh, as mauling and appalling as the story of my guest for today, a man named uh, Pinchas Couture, who he lived through the Warsaw Ghetto. He witnessed the beginning of the Warsaw Uprising, which started virtually across the street from his house. He survived five concentration camps. He, he lost his sister and his parents, and yet he survived, and, and, and he built a life. He, he, he married, he had children. His story is, is nothing short of incredible. It's a testimony to, as he puts it, uh, God's providence. It's a testimony to the fierceness of the human spirit, and it's a testimony to just how incredibly strong human beings can be because when you hear a story i'm sure you'll agree with me that it's unbelievable that somebody who went through something like that didn't break and without uh, further ado i'd like to present an interview uh, with holocaust survivor uh, pinchas couture so the first question would be when did the war start for you well the war started for me almost the first day when we uh, when the germans attacked poland because we were in a train going back home to Łódź from a, uh, a wedding that uh, I went to. My grandfather had a farm in a place called Jelun, and uh, the um, Luftwaffe started strafing the trains, and we had to kind of, the train would stop and we would run into a ditch or uh, a culvert or something like that, and then the train would continue. They didn't do, uh, that particular train, we were fortunate that we actually, you know, I, I can't remember if anybody was killed. I was a little boy. I mean, I was like, uh, uh, you know, going on eight. And um, and uh, so I don't kind of, I, I didn't exactly appreciate. I knew what was going on, but uh, I didn't look if anybody got killed or or, or, or what, what happened. But anyway, that train actually managed to get to Wood. So I don't think they disabled it. And then things in Poland began to, to get quite bad quite quickly, but uh, as I understand it, anti-Semitism was quite bad in Poland even prior to the war. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's two ways of looking at it uh, from that point of view. Uh, Poland uh, was um, a haven for, uh, for, for, for 
Judaism for hundreds of years, and uh, it only started unraveling, you know, when when they started, uh, you know, around about 1650 something, when there was the revolt of the Ukrainian, uh, you know, Cossacks uh, under a a, a chief uh, in, in, in in Polish, it's called the Hetman Chmielnitski. He revolted against the the, the you know, Poland was the Commonwealth of Poland of Lithuania, and the king, you know, they, at that time they were the overlords of 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 half of Ukraine anyway, and um, and then they, they kind of things started going a bit awry, and Poland started to unravel. So by the by the time when there was the partition in 1700 and I can't remember 98 or 99 or 97, something like that, when they divided Poland between the three empires, the Prussian, the Russian, and the, um, you know, and then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, anti-Semitism, you see, it started to, to, to get worse and worse, and Jews started to suffer. And I'm not quite sure whether you call it anti-Semitism, because from my point of view, in, in Poland, or in the Commonwealth of Poland, uh, before before the kind of uh, bad antisemitism, it was usually the Catholic Church that you know was fighting with the lords and the and the nobles and the land and the and the landowners and um, and they tried to get the kind of the upper hand and uh, and the Jews were almost like you know a, a, uh, a it's almost like a forspizer you know what that means uh, it's, uh, it was like an appetizer for 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 the for the masses and you could blame the Jews quite easily mm-hmm. of course uh, and and that, and that's why so they used that it was used as uh, I don't think that the because generally for hundreds of years I mean you know Poland I mean the Jews came to Poland almost the same time as as Christianity Christianity only came in the nineteen in in nine hundred and you know in the it, I mean in the second millennium and well it, it's kind of it's towards the end of the first millennium nine hundred and fifty something and then. After that, uh, what actually happened is uh, even for quite a while there was a kind of pagan, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, worship in in Poland, and especially in Lithuania. Lithuania only became, uh, you know, uh, uh, Christian uh, around about two, three hundred years later when when the when the Duke of Lithuania married the Queen of Poland. So, so you see, it's very difficult to know. But in actual fact, uh, until nineteen until about the the the, 19th, the 18th 19th century, it was complicated. But uh, uh, real antisemitism started to rear its ugly head from 1919 when Poland regained its its its, um, its uh, independence. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and there were there was one party, particular uh, a nationalist party, that uh, wanted to. Solve the. Uh, there were too many Jews, as far as they were concerned. There were about three, three, ten percent to eleven percent of the population were Jewish, and uh, they they wanted a, a a nationalist Catholic Poland. Poland is a Marian theocracy, and uh, they wanted to have a. They didn't want. They didn't actually like Ukrainians. They didn't like Moldavians. They didn't like anybody. They wanted to have a clean, clean Poland. Right. And that is so. But there were Jewish members of parliament between 1919 and 39. There were Jewish senators. There were people, you know, at the municipality. There were Jewish mayors. I mean, it, it was a mixed bag. It wasn't just pure anti-Semitism. 
So when did uh, the the Nazi anti-Semitism start after the 1939 invasion, in your memory? Well, as far well, uh, Nazi anti-Semitism started long before. Ger- in mm-hmm. Germany, anti-Semitism was much more uh, the actual pure word anti-Semitism was much more uh, prevalent in Germany than it was maybe in Poland. In Poland, it was a religious and a ethnic kind of. Uh, uh, you know, problem. Whereas in in Germany it was different. Now, but my first contact with the Germans was within a week or or ten days after they arrived. And I'll tell you the story. Um, when the Germans, when when the Nazis, you know, when the Germans attacked Poland, behind the troops came the security service. The the, the 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 Gestapo, the SS, they came behind immediately, and they rounded up notables. And notables, uh, they killed priests and uh, rabbis and anybody that they thought, nobles, anybody they thought that may be resistance for the future of their occupation of Poland, because they had no uh, belief that they would conquer Poland very quickly, and they wanted to get rid of, of all these uh, elements that might create problems for them. Uh, and uh, so they started rounding people up. There were lots of Germans living in in Poland, ethnic Germans, Poli- uh, Polish citizens, who were left over after Poland regained its independence. For example, in Łódź, there were over 100,000 ethnic Germans. So they collaborated with them, obviously, before the war, and they made up lists. And uh, my grandfather, who was a uh, a president, or well, I don't know what they called it then. I know the Hebrew word, uh, and he he was in charge as as it like it was like an NGO, in charge of a seminary that was making you know or teaching people to become uh, rabbis. And uh, he was one of these lists which I obviously got from the Jewish Community Council because in every city, in every town in Poland, there was a Jewish Community Council that looked after Jewish religious affairs and, and other things, you know, almost like quasi in, in education and stuff like that. They must have got it. And they came. We shared an apartment with the interleading door because my grandfather was, an eight, was about 78 years old. So they came to... Take my gra- they came to great take my grandfather, and they rang the bell. My father, nobody, the war was still on. Nobody was working, so we were winemakers. By the way, we were more winemakers in Poland for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And my fa- my father was at home, and my grandfather was recuperating from a kidney operation, so he was in bed. And uh, there was a ring on the uh, a bell rang. My father went to open the door. They asked for my grandfather. They took them into his bedroom. He was lying there, and they thought, "Well, he's, um, you know, he's like uh, dying anyway, so we won't bother to take him." And they asked my father, "Who are you? I'm the son. What do you do? I'm a winemaker. Where do you make wine?" Novomyanska 19. There, where the cellars are there. So they took him away. They beat him almost to death, and they threw him into a corner, and then they got the German military police to take all the trucks as they were passing by that street going to the front to come and help themselves uh, to the thousands of bottles of wine and when they finished with the wine they took the you know they were they, they were you know uh, big big uh, vets that were the uh, wine which was maturing and they broke those took it took it away jerry cans and they destroyed something that was there for many, many years, apparently over 100 years, something like 100 years, and they destroyed that in like 48 hours. 
And then the caretaker brought, uh, went down to see my father because he saw them taking him in with a Polish Catholic man in charge of that complex, went down, found him that he was unconscious, breathing, risked his life because it was curfew, brought him home, and that's how we learned what happened. So this was my first encounter with the SS, with two SS men that came to collect my grandfather, and I was in the bedroom when that was happening, and I can see it like today. And things started to get... Uh... And then things started getting to worse. The, the war was kind of finishing, and then uh, Jews couldn't have bank accounts. They could. They were bank accounts were frozen. All their, whatever they did, if they, you had a convenience store, if you were a tailor and had your own, or you had a dry cleaner, or if you, uh, or if you were employed by the municipality, or if you were employed by the bank or the police, there were Jewish policemen. There were all kinds of people in different uh, organizations. So they, they, all of these people lost their jobs. So there was unemployment. Uh, you had to give up furs. You had to give up jewelry. I mean, they were like every day there was a new law, and, and Jews became outlaws. You couldn't go to the park. You couldn't use public transport. I mean, it, it just became impossible to really exist. And, um, and of course, you know, our winemaking business was completely destroyed. Um, um, and and uh, so things were getting really from bad to worse. Uh, Wuj was going to be incorporated into the German Reich uh, because they took part of Poland and they they divided it Poland and they left a kind of rump of Poland called the general government. The rest was part of of of, of the Reich and Wuj was incorporated. They changed the name Litzmannstadt. They changed all the names of the that happened later on. They changed all the names of the streets and the street where we were became Göringstrasse. And then they had a ghetto. But before all that, my father had a, a younger sister living in Warsaw. And he felt that it would be better to be in Warsaw. Uh, we were, uh, my mother was blonde, blue-eyed. She looked like a Scandinavian beauty. She was a very beautiful woman. And she was quite tall. She was, like, I would say, close to 5 foot 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, the, and we were twins. My mother only had two children. I had, a, I had a twin sister. We were all blonde and blue-eyed, so we dressed and we took, went to the strange station and we went to Warsaw as Christians. And my father, who couldn't pass as a Christian because he was dark, he had a beard, uh, he actually started walking and it took him two and a half months by smuggling himself, walking during the night and during the day. Either friendly uh, uh, farmers used to hide him in a barn, or he the Apollo was full of forest, he went into the forest, covered himself with leaves, and it took him about two and a half months to get to Warsaw. And then after that, the Warsaw Ghetto opened very quickly, did it not? Well, not very quickly. Warsaw Ghetto, uh, I was in, uh, before the Ghetto, uh, the Ghetto only was created uh, at the end, around about the first, it started moving in October, but I think they closed the, the walls, if I remember correctly, on the 1st of November. So the whole of 1940, uh, it was not, there wasn't a ghetto. People lived all over. But things were just as bad in Warsaw as they were. And this little boy, I'll give you an example of what happened. There, were, there was rations. And uh, so there were people standing in, in the line, waiting outside shops to collect either bread or whatever food. And when a Jew came to the line, uh, the Polish Christians or the Germans that were there would kick him out or put him to the end of the line. 
And when he got to the shop, there was very little left or sometimes nothing left. And sometimes they would beat you up and and then just kick you out. Uh, my mother had an idea. By that time, there were about 16, 17 people living in my aunt's little flat because some other uh, family of ours, my father's elder sister and her husband and their children, they all came and stayed there. There were about 16, 17. So my mother had a good idea. She gave me the money, and this little blue-eyed blonde guy looked, you know, who was reasonably tall for his age, would come and stand there, and they would push a little young boy, push him to the front, and I would go into the shop, and I became, you know, the supplier of food because I would go as a Christian person. And people didn't know, was I German, was I Polish, because I was blue-eyed and blonde, and the ideology of the Aryan is you have to be blonde and blue-eyed, except that I think there were more Jews blonde and blue-eyed than Germans. Right. So there you are. So this is how life was. But the same thing happened. I would run the streets, and I would uh, I was never scared, so I would be in the street. My sister was always at home with my mother, and um, and I would see scenes like, uh, even not Nazis, not necessarily Gestapo, soldiers on leave, they used to have, they didn't have guns when they were on leave, but they used to have a bayonet, you know, uh, on, on their left-hand side, they had bayonets on their uh, on their uh, belt. And they would take out the bayonet, collect a few Jews with beards, and try to scrape their beards off with a blunt bayonet, take skin off. Then they would get girls around and would make these elderly, uh, you know, religious men dance like, 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 uh, just, just like monkeys, you know, and, and disport themselves. And uh, people would stop you. As I said to you in Wuj, Jews became outlaws. Any person who wasn't Jewish could stop you in the street, beat you, take everything out of your pockets, rob you, and there was no, uh, uh, you, you, you had no uh, way of, you know, there was police still, the Polish police, you know, were taken over by the Germans, and they collaborated with them, but you couldn't go to a policeman and say, look, I've been robbed or anything, and I'm talking about this is the beginning. This is the beginning. So how did, how did things go in the, in the intervening well, period for your family? Well, my father, when he came, he found a little apartment, and fortunately, he found it in Nalewki, in a building which the front of the building was destroyed by a bomb during the bombardment of Warsaw in '39, and in, in, in the time, you know, until it, it actually surrendered. And, but the rest of the building, you know, Poland is, is Poland, Polish buildings are quadrangles uh, with, a, with a courtyard in the middle. So the front of the building was destroyed, but the rest was still there. So he found a little apartment, a one little bedroom, and a, and, and, and a small kitchen with, with the, with the uh, bathroom in the hallways. And, uh, and, um, and he started, all he could do is make wine. So he started buying raisins on the black market because you couldn't make now grapes. There were no such thing as making grapes. But he could, make, he could make wine from anything, from any fruit or anything like that. He started making, set up a little kind of still in the kitchen. I went running around Warsaw, that was before the ghetto closed, uh, anywhere, looking for empty bottles that he would wash, and, uh, and he would make this wine in, in, uh, you know, in the kitchen. And then people would order, because Jews, Friday night, they make uh, wine for Kiddush. You know, they, it's a kind of tradition that you bless, you bless the wine and you bless the bread. And uh, so uh, people would order, and people still had money, and I would go around, you know, deliver it, and he would deliver it. And this is how we started making a living. And my mother uh, found in the same street in Alefki a kind of 
little window kiosk where she stood and was selling little cigarettes, you know, cigarettes and sweets. And for about, um, you know, for the time that before the ghetto was closed and a few months inside the ghetto, she had this kiosk. But after that, she found it difficult to get anything because everything was on black market. I'll give you an idea. Our ration, official ration by the Germans, was just under 200 calories, something like 198, 178 calories a day. Well, you know what 178 calories a day is? I mean, even uh, I think one of the uh, Mars bars has got more than that. Right. So, you know, it was everything was became black market. And people started, uh, you know, it was hunger. They squeezed in 350,000 people which lived in, in, in the whole area of Warsaw into about less than 4%. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but uh, less than 4% of the actual area in, in the center of town. And they closed it off. And, there was, uh, and they started, you know, they set up a whole uh, kind of uh, government. Jewish government, we had the Jewish Community Council, we had Jewish police, Jewish uh, prison, Jewish uh, prison uh, officials, we had the fire brigade, we had the sanitary, we had a whole system built up by the Germans, except they could do nothing except every day the SS would come and tell the chairman of the Jewish Community Council what he wants and what he doesn't want. And they started setting up factories from Germany both outside the ghetto and inside the ghetto. And they also asked for slave labor. People were taken out every day. Thousands of men were taken out, working on the roads. People, you know, who never, you know, like lawyers and, and accountants and, and, and people that worked in, in textile factories, you know, uh, uh, glaciers and uh, metal workers. They, were, they became like horses because they had to work in the roads. And instead of uh, tractors, they used human beings to pull all those rollers and stuff, and and they would bring them back half dead. They wouldn't feed them properly. I mean, things that started getting uh, really, really bad. We were forbidden to pray. We were forbidden to go to school, and things were, you know, from the beginning of 1941, you started seeing dead people in the street. And as 41 went on, more and more people were pushed into the ghetto from the surrounding towns. They cleaned all the cleanse, ethnic cleansing of all the towns of Jews pushed them into the ghetto, brought Jews from Germany and other places. And by the end of 1941, there were close to a half a million people there. Nobody knows the exact numbers, but they talk between anything between 480 to 500,000. And people were pushed uh, uh, that they, they would, like in my little apartment, which was very little room, my father used to bring people to sleep at night because they didn't have where to be. People stepped in the street, they opened up the synagogues, they opened up the halls. And, uh, and and uh, and and people started dying by the by the hundreds daily, and uh, the Jewish co- uh, burial society couldn't cope with them, and they used to the Jewish police used to catch people in the street, give them wheelbarrows to to take the dead bodies, clean the dead bodies from the streets, and take them to a, a, a huge uh, uh, kind of uh, on the Jewish cemetery. They they dug a, 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 an enormous enormous kind of uh, grave, uh, actually a, 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 a ditch, a huge ditch, and they were throwing them in like you throw garbage in there. You know, there was no, there was no, uh, if you had money, you could still get a proper funeral with prayers, but if you didn't have money, you couldn't. And things went from bad to worse, but it was an apocalyptic 
kaleidoscopic hell. Why? Because there was a lot of people who were both informers, worked with the German Gestapo, who uh, knew how to organize themselves, were part of the black market, part of the administration, part of the Jewish police, part of, of all kinds of things. You know, there's always good people and bad people, the majority and, and the small minority. So in the ghetto, you actually saw uh, cafes where people were dancing and drinking wine and, and roast geese and ducks and the smells would come out and outside people would be dying of hunger. And typhoid started, TB started, and if you go to uh, if, if you go to um, the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw now, which was not destroyed, there is a, a huge, huge grave where over 100,000 people were buried who actually died in the Warsaw ghetto. What were your most me- uh, vivid memories from that time as a boy? My most vivid memories uh, were, well, it, it was... You know, I haven't even told you when I started the, the, the deportations, but the, the, the most vivid memories is the way my father and mother tried to protect us. I mean, it, my, it, I always think of my father like an angel with wings, and he kind of he tried to, you know, kind of uh, take his wings and, and, and uh, uh, you know, put, the, put those wings around us to shield us from all this iniquity. And this is basically what kind of like when I think about that time, because, you know, you cannot imagine, you can't even think about it, even if you were there. And then all this unraveled in, in July of 1942, when on the 22nd placards appeared on the wall and they started, uh, they said that you all these uh, sicknesses, unemployment and people hungry, we're going to send you to a place, families, we're going to give you three kilo bread and and jam for the journey, and you must come voluntarily to the Umstagplatz, which was the place where the where, where the where the trains, you know, the cattle trucks were. And uh, and and uh, in the beginning, a lot of people who were you know dying of hunger and things went voluntarily. But within a few weeks, we knew in the Warsaw Ghetto that by going to be deported, not resettled, but deported. You were going to Treblinka and you were going to die there because that's where they set up guest chambers and you were going to die. And my father, I think because of his experience with the, with the, with the Nazis, didn't trust them at all. Like, you know, they played games. They issued all the kind of documents, red documents, green documents, battle tags, and they said, this, these people are not going to be resettled. These people are not going to be resettled. And then what they would do, they would surround a few streets and they would tell everybody must come and show their documents. And they would say, now, these documents are not valid anymore. We issued green documents or whatever, different color. And only those are not going to be resettled. Everybody else is going to be resettled. And, um, and that's it. And, uh, and, and, and then and so we were always hidden, hidden behind false walls, behind cupboards, behind... He always found a place to hide us, and we and we managed to actually stay in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, until the uprising in, on the 19th of April of 1943. And by that time, uh, a lot of bunkers were built. And I remember I told you that the building in front of us was destroyed, and there was mm-hmm. a ruin. So under those ruins, and we were on the corner of Nalewski and Miller, uh, they built a, a bunker right underneath the earth, put in electricity, water, 
air vents were put into the where the ruins were so they couldn't be seen from the street and they had two entrances you know with, with the way you went in uh, with with steps they built kind of steps down and um, and and on the 19th of april when the alarm was given that they're coming to fetch the last 50,000 that is the people the uprising started and we went down into the into the cellar into the bunker and we were in the bunker for about three weeks, and we were discovered. We went out. We were sent, instead of sending to Treblinka, if I was sent to Treblinka, I wouldn't be talking to you. We were sent to Majdanek, and in Majdanek, they separated men from women, just like they did in Auschwitz. And, and, uh, and then there were selections for, I didn't know that, but my father told me that I must say that I am five years older, and the documents that I've got, that mm-hmm. uh, which I got after the war from because they kept once they chose your slave labor you 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 know you you got documents and it's shown that I was born in 1927 instead of 1932 and uh, and anyway I was uh, standing with my father with the men not with the children and not with the women with children my sister was separated and stood with the children she ran towards my mother when she saw my mother she hugged her took her around just like my father hugged us with these with these wings and i suppose she she was terrified and my mother hugged her and kept her so they were they were there pushed towards the women with the children and since that time i cannot remember anything of my sister except she had a long blonde braid so whenever i think of my sister sabina i mean it's, it's it, the first time i told the story i mean i broke down because can you imagine somebody who's got a photographic visual memory and remembers everything from uh, from the age of really almost like two? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember anything of my sister. Uh, uh, somebody that was born was part of me, and I can't remember anything, not from before the war, not during the war, except the plate. Sabina, I think of her now. All I see in my eyes is her beautiful blonde braid. Right. So and this was... This is when I arrived in Majdanek, and then they were pushed us into a barrack to undress. We were undressed naked, and I said my prayers because I thought that we were going to be killed. I knew that that's what happens, and uh, we were running uh, naked with our hands up in the air. My father was running in front of me, and uh, there was a man with a white coat, and he was pushing people right, left, right, left, right, left. I came into a room with uh, shower heads, and I and I waited for the guests to come out because this is what we knew in the Warsaw Ghetto, that, you know, they, they, they kind of like try to fool you by telling you that you're going to be disinfected but uh, and that you're going to have a shower and cleanse, uh, but in the meantime, guests comes out and you die. But water in my place, in my case, water came out, and I was chosen to be a slave laborer. And that's where you lost your parents, is it not? And that's where my parents, yeah, my sister and my parents were killed the same day. Because my father, I, I was looking for my father when I came out of that place where they, the guest chamber in Majdanek was very near, was, was very near to where the, 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 the showers were, the, the, the proper showers were. And uh, although it's changed a bit because some of it was destroyed, but if you go to Majdanek today, you can actually see on the one hand showers were, People were, were were selected to work, and on the other hand, the guest chamber where people were, you know, guests murdered. And uh, I, I looked for my, you know, the showers uh, worked, and so my father, where's my father? But 
I saw a man who I knew from Warsaw who used to come and sleep in our little kitchen, and I asked him where my father was, and he didn't answer. He just lifted his eyes to heaven, and uh, in such a way that my this boy of eleven, you know, understood that his father was killed. Well, you were only a boy of eleven, and then yeah. lost your whole family. How did you manage to cope with things and survive in the way that you did? Uh, I don't know. I I I, I ascribe most of my uh, uh, to to two things. Firstly, to providence. I was a religious Jew, and I believe that providence kept me because all the town. If I have to tell you everything that happened from then on, from nineteen from like uh, it was May of ni- first week of May of 1943 to 1945, I mean, it will take me uh, at least another hour to tell you everything that happened to me and all the different camps that I went through mm-hmm. because I went through, uh, I was selected to work in a, uh, in, in somebody wrote a book about it who was in that camp, Skarzysko, where I was sent to from Majdanek, and he called it in the factories of death because people will work to death instead of, Murdered, you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was in Sarzisko, I was in Częstochowa, I was working in an iron works like Hamilton, you know, uh, loading huge ingots of steel onto wagons. I was in Buchenwald, I was in Kolditz, I was in Theresienstadt, I was on a death march, and eventually I, 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 you know, liberated by the Russians on the 8th of May. But what kept me was, I would say, providence and chance, one of those two, because uh, it, it, it is impossible to believe that you can uh, survive the things that I went through. It's just impossible. Uh, you know, I was selected a couple of times to, to be murdered, and I managed by, with the help of a Jewish policeman in Skarzysko, uh, two Jew- twice, uh, once, uh, one Jewish policeman, another, another time another Jewish policeman, you know, saved my life by you know, giving, taking my rags off and dressing me properly with the last election when they were liquidating the camp. And uh, food was scarce. You, you got very little uh, rations. You worked 12 hours a day. Typhoid, I had typhoid in, uh, you know, I nearly died of typhoid in Skarzysko. I was then in Częstochowa, which was a, uh, a, before I was sent to Buchenwald, I was in Częstochowa, Zelazna Huta, where I worked with the, in this iron steel, and that camp was a better camp because there was a Jewish... The, the, those working camps had the Jewish administration. And depending on how good or bad the Jewish administrators were, uh, things were either better or worse. And also, at the end of 1944, they tried to keep the slave, lab, the slave workers alive because they couldn't replace them. Right. Because all the, all the Germans were being you know, taken to the army. They were being, uh, you know... Uh, you know, they already took 60-year-old men to the army, so they needed slave labor. So they gave us a bit. Uh, we worked for Hassak, Hugo Schneider Aktiengesellschaft, a company that was owned by the German banks that exist today. The shareholders, all the shareholders were. were. And it was an armaments factory, uh, started before the war, and they took over factories in Poland and in Germany. And I finished up with working through there in, in all their different, you know, factories, and, and, and uh, that was... And then I survived. Thank God I survived. You were a survivor of, of seven different camps. which is Five, five. Five, that's right. Uh, five, no. Majdanek, Skarzysko, Częstochowa, Zelazna Huta, Buchenwald, Kolditz, and Theresienstadt. But in Theresienstadt, I was there on a death march after, you know, 
uh, after working walking from from Kolditz all the way to Czechoslovakia Trezenstadt and about half of us were mur- murdered on the way because if you couldn't keep up you were uh, I'll give you exactly what I mean by providence when I arrived in Kolditz I I was asked uh, when we had the roll call the commander, which was then just an ordinary staff sergeant, uh, SS staff sergeant, uh, elderly one, about 50 or 60 years old, he said, if there's young people here, they must step out. Now, young people never stepped out because young people were not regarded as, as, as workers. They, would, they were murdered. Right. But I stepped out. Don't ask me why I stepped out. I stepped out. And he took me by the hand and took me to the kitchen where the, where the kitchen was... The, the SS kitchen where they prepared food for the SS and for the whole camp. And, of course, working in the kitchen, you, have, you can eat. Right. And that built up my strength so that on the death march, I managed to w- walk all this way from Kolditz, which was near Leipzig, mm-hmm. all the way to Dresdenstadt, where half, about 1,500 of us, you know, came, started off, and half of, half of that, about 750 or 60 or so, arrived in, in Theresienstadt about three weeks before the end of the war. One of the things that you've, you've talked about often is, is, is the cruelty of people, where there was uh, the people in the camps and, and those who ran the camps attempted to dehumanize them, but those who ran the camps also became somehow less than human themselves in many cases and ended up doing all sorts of horrifying and sadistic things. Absolutely. I mean, I will tell you my my my, my uh, welcome at Maidanek the first night uh, when we were assigned to a barrack and, we, and then we were given a little bit of something to eat and then we were, you know, as soon as lights were out, we had to go and sleep. And I was assigned a bunk at the bottom. Uh, we slept on straw. Uh, and when I woke up in the morning, uh, I saw three young men hanging from the rafters. And, of course, I was a Hasidic little boy. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people, would, and I saw that they committed suicide. But later on, I was told, and I, again, I wasn't told the whole story because I didn't, you know, people, I didn't suppose, they young men, they didn't want to, they told me that they were murdered by the Blockhalterster. The Blockhalterster was a German criminal, you know, who was serving his time, you know, brought from Germany, to become a, a, in charge of a barrack, and he had two helpers, Stubendienster, who worked, you know, where they were the, the, the kind of the overlords of that, and he was, he was a, a sadistic man, and he, he, I was told that he killed people at night. I mean, obviously now I know what he did, that he was a, a, a sadist, a, a pederast or whatever, but the fact was that at that time, this, is my, this was my kind of welcome to see that. And then I was beaten by a couple, uh, so badly in Theresienstadt, in Majdanek, and how I survived that, I have no idea, because I was lying on a kind of little, uh, it's a whole story about me working in a little garden in front of the barrack. Anyway, he came, uh, just outside a couple, a German couple arrived, asked me what I'm doing, and I said I've, I was told by the, uh, by the, by the, block elders that to look after the cleanliness of the barrack and all that, and I was just lying on, uh, you know, because I was doing you know, busy with flowers and stuff like that. They started kicking me in my backside, and he kicked me for about, I don't know, 10 minutes, and then he just walked away, and I was bleeding, and then the bleeding stopped, 
and after the war, I had three operations because they found that they were. I, I was, you know, I was badly injured, and to this day, I actually suffer from it. Not badly, but I still suffer to this day from it. And it's it's incredible that the types of things that that could go on, and you where you seem to have been in in many of the camps that are discussed now. And what what are the sorts of things that you saw? Somebody like me who can't even fathom the types of things that you're talking about, um, who can't even fathom the things that my grandparents tell me about after having lived through the war in Europe. Um, paint us a picture. What what was it? Well, like? you see, for example, you take my Danek. You know, people always talk about Auschwitz, which was, of course, Auschwitz was an extermination camp, but so was my Danek. But my Danek was also a working camp. It had five fields, five kind of separate fields. And a lot of the prisoners there were not Jews. They were uh, eventually they were uh, prisoners of war, Polish resistance, uh, people, uh, Polish people that were arrested, and and and, and there was a, a one camp there, one next to each other, uh, and one of uh, female uh, female camp, and uh, the majority of the guards were Ukrainians. The Ukrainians were. According to, you know, to what I saw, and according to the to the, the suffering, Maidanek was one of the worst camps because they did it. Like for example, people that were guests, all right, so they were guests and they were killed. But those that were working were tortured on a daily basis because they used to use them, as I told you, instead of using, uh, you know, work. Uh, road machinery, they used human beings as horses to to use those rollers and make roads and make bridges and, 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 and cement things and really very hard labor. And when they didn't uh, have uh, anything to do, they would, and I was involved once I was caught, you know, to an Arbeitskommando, where they, uh, they took us to a place where there was a huge uh, uh, mound of stones, and we had to run about a kilometer to put these stones somewhere else. So I thought, well, you know, all right, we're taking, we're running, we're running with the stones, and while you were running, they were hitting you with the rifle butts and, and, and whips and the couples, not only the Ukrainian guards, but the couples and everything else. And what's more, the Ukrainian guards loved to kill people, but they didn't kill them by shooting them only. They would split their heads with spades. If they didn't like how you worked, or if they didn't like you, uh, they would just take a spade and hit you. And every day when the people came back from go going to work outside the camps, they would always bring back uh, uh, half a dozen or more of people that were killed while they were working. You cannot imagine the cruelty and the torture that went on in Majdanek. It never, in, 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 in Auschwitz, they never had such torture as they had. They had different kinds of torture mm -hmm. and different kinds of things. But the Ukrainian guards, who were the majority of guards in Majdanek, they were so horrific that you cannot imagine that the Poles that were there, it's regarded today, people are scared actually to go there. They don't like going there because it gives you the heebie-jeebies just to go into the camp. So that was Majdanek. And then it depends, as I told you, in in certain camps you had good people who were around the camps. I'm talking about now working camps. In Buchenwald, where by the time I arrived, the criminals were take uh, uh, the communist uh, or left wing uh, German prisoners managed to get 
uh, help uh, uh, to take over the internal administration. These were German prisoners who, I suppose, the SS by that time, it was already end of 44, beginning of 45, and they kind of saw where, the, where it was going. So the, the left-wing communists managed to take over the running of the administration. And when they ran the administration, Buchenwald was terrible because there was no food. People were just dying from hunger uh, by, 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 by the hundreds. You went to sleep with a thousand people in a barrack, and in the morning you took 40, 50 uh, bodies out to, to be counted and then taken to crematorium. Buchenwald didn't have a guest chamber, but it had a crematorium to, to, to cremate the remains of the people that died there. So all these things, uh, you know, were going on all the time. And it, it's just impossible to believe. I mean, when, when, when I read a book about what happened in Skarzysko, mm-hmm. which was the longest, I was in that camp for a year, and it was only the only reason I survived that camp is because a Jewish policeman who had the wife there, the, the, the Jewish administration had special privileges. So they could have, like the commander, the Jewish commander of our, of Skarzysko, a woman, uh, she had a husband and her children and a mother, and they had separate barracks, and they had plenty to eat, and, and they were like regarded as collaborators. But this Jewish policeman had a wife that was dying of TB, and he also happened to come from Wuj, and he knew my family. So he told me that I must become her nurse. I worked 12 hours. When I came home, well, came back to the camp, then I would look after her. I would wash her. I would clean her. She was dying of TB. She was incontinent, and I would wash her her clothes, and I would wash her, uh, you know, uh, everything that she was sleeping, like pillowcases and sheets and whatever. And uh, and he would give me extra food, and he would kind of shield me from... from and, and he saved my life at the end because I was... Uh, selected uh, to be murdered by by the commander, and then we started running. It's a long story, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I can't tell you that now. I'm too, uh, just horrific. When so it was always, and then in the other camp, for example, in Chenstochova, the commander of the camp uh, was a wonderful man. So he managed to sort himself out with the with the Ukrainian and the Germans that they never ever came inside the camp. The camp was run by the Jewish police. Nobody died there. Well, it's not true. Once one person died, and he died of his own fault because uh, the 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 uh, we were uh, very near the lines where the trains would be going to Russia with tanks and things, and they were very heavily guarded by all kinds of people on on the outside. We were on a kind of very near of a main uh, rail rail uh, railway lines going to Russia and and fighting. So one person went too near to the uh, to the to the wire, and one of the guards from outside uh, shot him. But apart from that, nobody died in that camp, and the food was much better. And when winter came, he, he got some tailors in the camp to take blankets and cut them up and give the youngsters so that they shouldn't freeze because Poland gets very cold, colder than 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 uh, in Canada uh, often. You know, and, and, and I remember in Skarzysko, at, at one stage, I, when my shoes were worn out, I had to put, you know, paper from cement sacks from, you know, from other chemicals and, and with wire tie around, and I would walk in the snow like that. So, you know, this is the type of thing that, uh, you know, once you start talking about it, kind of these memories come flooding back. Right, right. What's, 
what are the kinds of things that you try to emphasize when you speak about your experiences? When I speak, I only have like 50 minutes. So what I do is I tell them quite a bit about before the war, like I was a happy little boy before the war, and how my father taught me to become a winemaker, and how my grandfather took me to the school at the age of three and a half. And then I speak about, you know, I, sometimes depending, uh, I, I tell them about how my first encounter with the Gestapo, and then what happened in Warsaw, sometimes, and I tell them a little bit what happened in, in Majdanek in the sense that my parents were murdered, and then I tell them uh, a, a little bit about Skarzysko and about the last election, because I, there's a long story about it, that my best friend was taken to be murdered, but I found him in 2002, and it, that's a long story in itself. Mm -hmm. and, and I finish off on that. So but I, there's only 50 minutes to talk, so you can, or you can only pick out. It, depending on if I speak to, stand, you know, to grade 8 or 9 or grade 10 to 12, you know, you, you can't tell them. And I don't, don't delve on the horror. I just tell them the, the things the way they were, but given them the kind of um, Dantesque hell in which you were in. So, what do you remember of the liberation? Um, the, the best thing for you to do is take out a book by Sir Martin Gilbert called The Last Day of the War. Mm -hmm. I read and You read it. Mm -hmm. Have? I have, Well, yes. in there you found my story. That's right. I the story of the I, I horses. Didn't, I didn't make that connection until just now. That's me. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, that's that's the day, the day of liberation. That's what happened. And I always, so you know, I have people who haven't read the book. I can tell them the story, but uh, it was it, and it is like a very him because he actually did exactly the letter that I sent him. You know, he printed everything. Of course, he kind of. My English is not as good as his English, so I mean, he, he, it's better English. But basically, he, he, the story is exactly the way it happened. And you've spoken a lot on on coping with what you remember since, and and dealing with 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 the horror that happened all those years ago. Uh, how do you cope with it on a day to day basis, living with all these memories? Well, it it depends. It's. Um, for the first ten years of post-war, from you know, I, when the war when the war uh, finished, I was 13 years old. So, and I had my bar mitzvah in in Chenstochova because that camp was the best camp. I call it I call it a spa because it was that camp was so different to all the other camps. And fortunately, I was there for a few months. Uh, you know, from like from August to uh, to. I think end of November, August, September, October, November, maybe December, because I think in December we were sent to Buchenwald. So, so, so I had my bar mitzvah there. So for the first ten years after the war, first of all, we were taken to England. You know, we were after three months in Theresienstadt, where I worked with my horses and I was uh, employed by the Russians and the uh, as like a cottage contractor, and I looked at the, the horses became like my family. Right. And I built a stall for them and everything. It was really something, uh, you know, very close to me. And um, and then we were taken to England. And in England, uh, we were rehabilitated, you know. We were in Westmoreland in the Lake District. I know if you know the Lake District, it's very beautiful. And in an old camp where officers, they built a camp for training for officers. So they had all the facilities, sports field and, and, and halls for games and indoor games outside games, soccer, 
football and um, and and we were just there for about three months and then I went to a orphanage but to a yeshiva orphanage you know what the yeshiva is yes so I went to a yeshiva orphanage and for nine months I was in a yeshiva orphanage because the rabbi that was in charge of our camp in Westmoreland uh, he he knew that I came from a religious family and he also even knew because my grandfather was a very famous uh, you know Talmudic uh, sage very close to the Gary Rebbe uh, so he sent me to a yeshiva but uh, it didn't it, it, I was not well treated there, and I didn't like it. And after nine months, I w- went to a different uh, orphanage, and I started, uh, you know, uh, trying to get some education. But eventually, I I wasn't I didn't like being in an orphanage because I didn't like being treated like an orphan, and uh, you know, having to like. Uh, so I I asked the Jewish organization that kind of was in charge of us that I wanted to live with the family. So they found me a family, the Diamond family, and I became like almost like one of their sons. Mm-hmm. And while I was in England, uh, and I went to work at the age of 14, I started working and uh, and I earned, uh, you know, my wages and, and I started uh, reading a lot. I was a voracious reader already before the war. My mother, you know, was I spoke pure Polish with my mother and Yiddish with my father. And, and I, my mother, who was a Hasidic woman, but she was educated in the gymnasium, so she gave me books which my father didn't know about because you weren't allowed to as a Hasidic boy. You were supposed to study the Talmud and the Torah and all that, and you know. And um, but I, I became very and during the Warsaw Ghetto, I, 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 you know, read a hell of a lot, and and I continued doing that. So I kind of educated myself through reading. Every Saturday, I would go to the library in. in, in in uh, where I lived in uh, in Muswell Hill, and the librarian was already prepared for me. She knew the books I wanted, you know, history and 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 uh, all kinds of other things. Uh, and uh, she would have like ten books for me, and I was a voracious reader. And I would work, and then in the evening, I would spend my my evening nights till twelve o'clock reading. And then um, and and so ten years passed, and I had no problems. I only had one problem. I then found a cousin in France. I went to live with them, and I worked there as a. Uh, at the age of 16, I was looking after the textile little factory in Bagnolet, and uh, I had one episode. I dreamt I was being guest in the guest chamber, and I started screaming in the middle of the night. And they came and took me into their bed, and because even then I was still a child, you know, I right. wasn't. Uh, and uh, they took me into their bed, and I calmed down. And after that, that was it. And for the first 10 years, it was only in 1955 that I started having nightmares and started suffering uh, from being a Holocaust survivor. And I became quite disturbed. And, but it didn't, it didn't stop me from... So I suffered and I worked and, and continued. And I found and I got married and I was, I was in the Israeli army. And, uh, and um, I... I you know, I, I did lots of things in my life, mm-hmm. and I suffered, and, and I suffered, and I this, and, and to this day it hasn't left me. But, of course, when I started, I didn't start talking about it for many, many, many years. I didn't want to uh, kind of load my children with my problem. It was enough that my wife uh, suffered from it because I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, from, from these nightmares and sweating and wet. And then she would, and she actually, she actually was the one who kept me 
alive in, in that sense because mm-hmm. she suffered together with me. And uh, but my kids, thank God, they weren't. I've got uh, I've got two girls and, and I mean two young women. They're not young anymore. But I mean I had two 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 girls and a boy, and, and they thank God did not. They didn't be, they didn't have the syndrome of uh, child survivor syndrome. Thank God because. I never spoke about it. I I always spoke about my life before the war, and I always spoke about my times in. You know, I was ill before the war, and I was in the mountains, living with mountain people, Polish gurale, and I was just free and running around, and 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 and, and, and all the stuff like that. And they knew I was a Holocaust survivor, but they didn't talk about it. And it was only very recently. It was only in the 90s. It was. It's 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 about. I would say, it's about. From the first time that I gave testimony was to Paula Draper. Do you know who Paula Draper is? No. Paula Draper was a historian, a professor of history at the University of Toronto, who was taking testimonies from Holocaust survivors. And she found out that I was a Holocaust survivor when I was living in Canada. And she uh, phoned me a few times and wanted me to talk about it, and I wouldn't talk about it. And eventually she came and had tea with me. She said, can she come and have tea with me just to meet me and I said yes and she persuaded me eventually uh, to do and she did uh, she made um, uh, two tapes of two hours each of my testimony which which is at the Neuberger they've got this testimony which is now being digitalized in, in Los Angeles at the Shoah Foundation so if you if, if you can if they give it to you or but there is, you know, you can actually go on, on the Internet. If you put Pinchas Gutta, you will find God knows what you will find. You will find me being quoted by the President of the United States because, you know, he saw my... He, I was actually invited to the, to the luncheon in, in Los Angeles, but I couldn't go because I was taking people in Poland and, at that time. And, and, and he saw my testimony or whatever, and he saw my speeches, and he used my speech in his speech uh, uh, for quite extensively, toward the end of his speech, uh, he 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 said he said Pinchas Guter, and then he used part of my speech and used it as an example of how the world can be a better place. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that was Pinchas Guter, a Holocaust survivor, uh, telling us about his experience in five different concentration camps, the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, witnessing the Warsaw Uprising. And more. And one of the reasons I think that the stories of Holocaust survivors are so important today is simply because we're starting to see the rise of anti Semitism elsewhere. And I had this discussion well, with Mr. Gutur later on. Uh, anti Semitism is beginning to rear its ugly head in the very places in which the Holocaust took place. Uh, there are places in France now where, where Jews no longer feel safe, there are places in Europe now where Jews are discussing moving en masse to Israel. There are places now where Jews are hearing the same slurs, the same slurs that started the slow slide towards the Holocaust. And we all say things like never again. We look back at the Holocaust as this monumental evil that can never be repeated. But the second we start to accept and minimize hatred towards the Jewish people, we have already begun that slide. If you Think just for a moment about Germany, one of the most cultured and civilized Western countries. It was Germany that embarked on this massive genocide, this enormous binge of killing 
And it's something that nobody could have predicted, nobody could have imagined. When Eric Metaxas was writing in his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer about the Holocaust, he said it was like these demons passed through a rift in time and destroyed all of Germany's past as well, because after the horrors that took place during the Holocaust, no one would be able to imagine that Germany had ever been good. And now we're starting to see the same anti-Semitic slurs repeated. And this is something I think we should all be paying very close attention to. We should be listening to the stories of these survivors while they can still tell them. And we should take to heart the lessons found in these stories. Thank you so much for joining us again. If you'd like to hear uh, this interview, please go to thebridgehead.ca. We post all the interviews there. And uh, we, we just we thank you for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.